0: Hello, everyone hear me? Yes. Brilliant, the time mic's working. Last time I had to do a handheld mic all the way through an illustration involving lots of curtains and temples and stuff. So I'm hands free at least today. Um, last time I preached was actually in France, so I hope I don't lapse Back into French. Um, so if I do halfway through, that's that's why. Um, but it's great, um, great to see all of you here. Especially if you're new, you're really, really welcome. Um, we absolutely love having new people coming to visit and to find out what what we're about and to find out what, um, who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And um, so, if you're new, we're basically going through a preaching series at the moment called "What a Stunner," um, and it's a teaching series looking at the gospel but looking at it from different points of view. So the gospel is the message of Jesus, His life his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his return. So it's a huge message. It's like kind of this precious diamond but this diamond has been cut so that you can look at it from loads of different angles. That's why we call it what a stunner. So you can look at one angle and you think oh that's the gospel, the good news of shame removed in Jesus. That those who struggle with a deep sense of shame can have their shame completely removed in the gospel of Jesus. There's another angle where it's death defeated. People who think I am so scared of death and I just don't want to face it can hear the good news that through Jesus, death itself is going to be defeated. And so we're just looking at all of these different angles, and we've been doing that for about three three or four months, I think. Um, it hasn't really got tiring, because we're just looking at good news every single week. And what we're doing is tracing a particular theme through the Bible every single time, so that what we get used to thinking isn't the gospel is for unbelievers, and we need to preach the gospel to them, and then once we've heard the gospel, then we start doing specialised teaching. We start doing stuff that's really more in-depth, and we look at the Bible. But And non-believers, they don't need the Bible, they need the Gospel. And actually the aim is that we realise that this whole thing is Gospel. This whole thing is a massive story about God doing something which is good news. um, Good news to all of us. And the theme we're looking at today is a people for God. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of God creating a people for himself, um, from a people that weren't a people and turning them into God's people. So that's kind of the the tack we're going to take today. Um, But what I want to do is start by talking a little bit about something called a plot and a subplot so if you're into reading stories or even if you're not what you'll realise is there are some stories apart from maybe fairy tales which tend to just have one linear plot all the way through most stories have a big overarching theme and then within that story, you've got loads of little things going on. So I tried as hard as I could to find a story that wasn't Lord of the Rings, because Steph kind of ruined that last week by saying, oh, every single illustration of the gospel is Lord of the Rings. So I'm like, okay, I can't use Lord of the Rings. So I did a bit of a thing. So Lion King. Lion King, the overarching plot is the circle of life. Basically, the circle of life needs to be complete. And that's... No. <laughs> I'll sing it to you personally after if you want to <laughs> If anyone else wants a private performance of the Circle of Life, I will be glad to do that, but not now. (laughs) So, (laughs) So that's the overarching story. The Circle of Life needs to be complete. Within that, you have the very, very important story, in order for that to be fulfilled, of Simba, who needs to become the king. Okay. So the main plot is Circle of Life, but in order for that to happen... Simba needs to become king, otherwise the circle of life will not happen. Scar ends up getting Pride Rock, and the circle becomes a semicircle of life. And we don't want that, we want the full circle. <laughs> okay? Maybe another example, Narnia. The big overarching plot for Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is there needs to be a human being, or four human beings, on the throne at Cair Paravel, which is where the kings and queens of Narnia reign. That's the big overarching plot. Within that, you have the plot that... Aslan needs to defeat the witch and that uh, the beavers need to protect the the human beings. You've got loads of little plots within that. They're all aiming towards the fact that the big plot's going to get accomplished. And the same is true with the Bible. The same is true with the the story of Christianity, the story of God's people. The same is true. You've got an overarching plot and then within that you've got all of these different facets of the gospel which are the kind of subplots within that which have to happen in order for the main plot to, to work. And the big plot is basically that God wants to fill the earth with his glory. He basically wants everywhere in the world to be absolutely filled with his presence so that people look around and say, wow, God is amazing. That's the overarching plot. And if we don't understand that, what we end up doing is making Christianity and the Bible very individualistic. And we think the main plot of the story is Jesus loves me and wants a relationship with me. And that's it. And actually the overarching plot is about God. It's about God's wanting his glory, his fame, his honour to be completely filling the whole world. Okay, It says in, in, in Habakkuk 2.14, book in the Old Testament, it says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Ever notice that the waters kind of cover the whole of the seas? That's the, that's the point he's making. The whole of the earth is going to be filled with God's glory. Isaiah 11 says the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. So that's the overarching plot, but within that... There are subplots, and one of the subplots is that God is choosing a people for himself through whom his glory is going to fill the earth. And that's what we're going to trace through today. So we're going to start all the way at the beginning, at creation. So as those of you who know your Bibles a little bit will know, there is an incredible poem at the beginning of the Bible called Genesis 1. Well, we call it Genesis 1. They didn't call it that at the time. But called Genesis 1, which is an incredible poem about God creating everything. And basically, God creates the whole earth, he creates the cosmos, the universe, everything. He creates um, birds. I say this every single time, birds and bees and animals. And why I say that, I still don't know. But he creates all of the animals, he creates all of the plants, he creates these incredible mountain ranges, things that reflect his glory. I think you look at the Himalayas, you look at the Alps in France, you think that reflects the glory of God. But God said, actually, something's missing. Something is missing in order for my glory to fill the earth. It's not enough for the 9,000 meter high Everest to cry out God is glorious I want a creature who is actually going to reflect me in a much deeper way and so he creates human beings he says I want a people for myself who are going to be able to display what I'm like in a much more tangible, in a much deeper way than even the mountains and the stars can do which kind of gives you a sense of how important human beings are to God. And God says this in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. He says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness. So humans, basically, in the way they act and the way they're supposed to do things, look a little bit like God. So people should look at us and think, That is a dim reflection of what the Creator is like. That's the, that was the intention, basically. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Can we have the next one up, please? Uh, Nope. There we go. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. We heard about that last week. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, he creates human beings, male and female, and says, have lots of babies and fill the whole earth. Because when you do that, that's going to reflect my glory. Because everywhere you go in the world, there will be people that look like God's not that they are God, they look like him. And so people will say, wow, the gods who rules over this creation must be incredible. That's God's design. That's the overarching plot. And within that, there's a small plot. God creates humans in order to achieve that. Now, as you will know if you've been following this series, or been a Christian, or been around Christians for a while, or even just looked at the world, that is, does not seem to be what happened. It doesn't seem that humans have filled the world and everyone's going around saying, wow, God's amazing, look at all of these people who are acting so morally and so uprightly. If anything, you turn on... We've, we've got a TV again uh, recently, I hadn't had one for years, I've just watched BBC iPlayer. We've got the TV licence again. And you turn the news on at night, and there are times where I think, I don't actually want to watch this because it just depresses me. But what it does is it shows you there's, there's something that's gone terribly, terribly wrong. And what went wrong is humans said, instead of being your people... We want to be our own people. We are going to betray you, God, and we're going to be our own people. We're going to turn away. And what happens as a result is that a curse came upon the whole of creation. Because human beings who were designed to bear the very image of God, who were designed to look like God, turned away and said, We're going to be our own people. We don't want to be your people. A curse came upon creation, which isn't just God being nasty. It says something about how important human beings are, that when they turn away from their their mission, when they turn away from what they were designed to do, a curse comes on creation itself. Which kind of gives you a, a sense of just how significant we are within this big picture as human beings. So that's what happens. And then for the next... So this is what happens in Genesis 3. For the next, basically, eight or nine chapters, all the way through Genesis 11, we get the story of what the world is like when God doesn't have a people for himself. And it is not pretty. It really isn't. You can read through Genesis 4 all the way to 11, and there's murder, there's death, there's judgment, there's betrayal, there's a gigantic flood, there's pride. And the person who wrote that text is screaming out, look what the world looks like when God doesn't have a people for himself. Look what it looks like when humans say, we don't want to be your people. It looks like judgment, it looks like decay, it looks like sin, it looks like God saying... On one occasion, I regret that I made humans. That's a massive statement for God to say. I regret making humans because they have become so corrupted. And you read those chapters, you think something's gone awfully wrong. But what happens is in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to a man called Abraham. Can I have Abraham, please? Dave Mance, where are you? there you go, this is Abraham Abraham is a pagan worshipper from a a place called Ur which is kind of in modern day Iraq Um, so we'll put you around about here and God appears to Abraham and he says I'm going to bless you, which is what we heard about last week in other words I'm going to make you really fruitful I'm going to make your life really good and I'm going to multiply your offspring I'm going to give you lots and lots of children and they're going to have lots and lots of children and you're going to become a massive nation and in you all of the nations are going to be blessed so in other words I'm going to bless you and the result is that you're going to bless others. So God chooses a people and says, through this people, all of the nations, all of the stuff that went wrong when humans said, I'm, I'm turning away from God, is going to be undone. Now the idea of this is that Abraham and his children should not just be blessed, but be a blessing for others. So if they're not, it's a little bit like um, my old flatmate Alex Morton has become a doctor recently recently which is great, and he was really excited because he bought a new stethoscope just before he finished um, Just before he finished his study. He's, he hadn't actually got his results yet, so he was kind of like, I think I've passed, but I'll buy a new stethoscope and engrave Dr Morton on it. <laughs> um, luckily he passed, because um, otherwise it would have been a bit of a nasty stethoscope. Um, but imagine that Dr Morton decides, I love my stethoscope, I love being a doctor, it's a real blessing, I'm so glad I studied to be a doctor, but I'm just going to stay at home and look at my stethoscope. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't the uh, the way they engrave Dr. Morton in there just reminds me of of me, of all people, actually. And, and sits at home and doesn't do anything with it. That's what it would be like if God's people say, we're blessed, but we don't want to be a blessing. It's like a doctor sitting at home with a stethoscope saying, I love this, I love the blessing of being a doctor. But the aim of a doctor, obviously it comes with its benefits, not least the pay. And then they bless others by helping people to not be ill or to saving people's lives. It's a massive blessing. And that's the, that's the design that's given to God's people. I'm going to bless you so that through you, through you, Abraham, all of the nations are going to be blessed. And what we'll find out is that throughout the story of God's people in the Old Testament, we find out that more often than not, God's people end up being like the doctor who sits on his bed with a stethoscope saying, oh, I love this, than the doctor who is actually in A&E helping people to get better. So we're just gonna, what I'm going to do for the next 10-15 minutes is basically just tell the story of God's people through the Old Testament. And that's a nice, easy thing to listen to, and we're going to get people up the front involved. Um, and what I want to do is that we get to the end of the story of God's people in the Old Testament, and then when we get to Jesus and us, that we read passages that we probably read really often, and we read them afresh and we say, oh my goodness... God had promised that thousands of years before, and that's actually happened. And that's, the, that's, that's the aim. That's what I get out of, out of understanding and studying the story of the Bible. I read stuff in the New Testament now, and I think, you promised that thousands of years ago, God, and you've kept your promise. And that's the aim, really, today. Whilst we tell the story, that you would understand the story of God's people, how they failed, but then you would understand how the whole thing come, climaxes in Jesus, and that we get to be included as a part of that. So basically, Abraham... Well, he ends up having children, and they have children. So we have Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember that number. I've asked over the last few sermons I've done people to remember mathematical things. It was a cube last time. Now remember the number 12, please. Okay, so I also need all of the other people I asked to be part of God's people to come and join Abraham here. Because he is becoming a a big nation, and he's having lots and lots of children, and they're all kind of joining with him. Obviously, Abraham is now dead because he didn't quite live that long. But you can be part of God's people still, Abraham. Have we got a few more? Good, yeah, that will do. Okay, so, God had also said to Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you and give you a land, which is kind of modern day Palestine, so we'll say it around like about here, okay, so you guys can all come and move into your land, and they become, they, they become really numerous, but after a while, what happens is there's a famine in the land. And what God had done is he had sent, ahead of time, a guy called Joseph, who's going to be represented by Dave here. Joseph had gone all the way to Egypt because of something nasty his brothers had done, which we don't have to go into at the moment. He'd ended up in Egypt, and he'd ended up basically becoming the Prime Minister of Egypt. And he'd heard from God, there is going to be a severe famine. And God has told me how we need to organise food rations in order for Egypt to survive and actually for the nations around to survive. So he's become the big deal, basically. And so when God's people end up coming down to Egypt, they end up getting loads of food, because there's not much food here. So they end up going down to Egypt, and they go there, and they join Joseph, and they're all happy, they rejoice, like waving flags and everything. And they end up spending 400 years there, because things are pretty good in Egypt. And things weren't too well in the land that they'd been promised. So they spend 400 years there and they get even more and even more numerous. And the Egyptians love them until, after a while, a pharaoh arises, who's a king of Egypt. A pharaoh arises that didn't actually know Joseph and didn't like the Israelites. And he ended up making them slaves. Okay, So you guys need to look a little bit more like slaves now. Luke, that is not... There we go. That's better. Slave with hands in pockets is not... You're not going to do well. Okay, so they're slaves, and they are not happy. You guys are groaning. You're crying out to God. Why have you forgotten us? Why have you forgotten us? What happens is in the middle of that, a guy... A a guy... This is always what happens. <laughs> okay, careful, I'm going to get the Egyptians to come and <laughs> come and get you. A guy called Moses ends up... Um, he, he, he basically, through certain circumstances, ended up becoming another big cheese in the Egyptian, Egyptian kingdom. But one day, he ended up killing an Egyptian because the Egyptian was beating one of God's people, and Pharaoh heard about this. Pharaoh didn't like it very much. So, Moses... Run away, that way, into the wilderness. Away from Pharaoh. And stayed there for about 40 years. During that time, God's people became even more and more oppressed by the Egyptians. <laughs> <laughs> Just sounds like they've got food poisoning. <laughs> okay, now press pause on these guys over here. We go and meet... Moses, who has been in the wilderness for forty years, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want anything to do with God anymore. Doesn't want anything to do with his people anymore. He is happy in the wilderness. He's found a wife. He's got kids. He's happy there. He's happy with his with his father-in-law called Jethro, which I think is a cool name for a father-in-law. Okay, maybe not. And um, but what happens is one day Moses. Ends up meeting God. And if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you will realise he meets God in a burning bush. I always say Prince of Egypt. If you've read your Bibles, or if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you will know he meets, he meets God in a burning bush. And God says, I'm going to send you back to my people in Egypt. And you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, let my people go, so that they can go and serve me. So God appears to him and says that. And then a little bit later on, God appears to him again and says this, which we're going to put up on the screen. It is not very politically correct at all. But it's in Exodus 4. What I want you to get is a sense of God's passion for his people. He wants the earth to be filled with his glory. He's chosen a people in order for that to actually, for for the problem that was caused by humans turning away from God to be sorted out. He is passionate about that people. Because if that people fail, then basically the promise he's made fails as well. But he loves that people and is so zealous for them. And he says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let um, the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Not easy reading, not politically correct, but that is a God who is passionate about His people. Okay, now I heard this illustrated in in a way for me just brought it, made it really real to me. We might not like the idea of God threatening to kill someone's son because of His people, but I heard an illustration about this. Has anyone ever seen the film Taken with Liam Neeson in it? Okay, so it's, it's basically a film where Liam Neeson plays a guy who used to be um, like in the special services. And his 16-year-old daughter goes to Paris for the for weekend um, with a friend. Now, during that time, his daughter ends up getting kidnapped and taken into, into sex, tra- uh, sex trafficking, basically. And what happens is, whilst his daughter's being kidnapped, the, um, the phone that, he was speaking, that she was speaking to her dad on ends up lying on the floor, and the kidnapper picks it up. And there's this kind of epic, chilling scene which happens where Liam Neeson, this ex-SAS officer, speaks to the, uh, the kidnapper. And he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you want a ransom, I can tell you I have no money. But what I do have is a special set of skills that I've acquired over a very long period of time. Well, I've it off by heart. <laughs> skills, <laughs> skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you, let my, if you let my daughter go, that'll be the end of it. I won't pursue you. I won't come after you. But if you don't, I will find you, I will pursue you, and I will kill you. And that, okay, we laugh. Imagine you're in that situation. And you are the dad, and you have that. You are SAS. You're thinking, you've got my daughter. If you don't let her go, I am coming after you. And he basically blows up the whole of Paris in order to get her again. He go, he, it's and it's, quite, it's, it's a chilling moment in the film but that, when, when I heard that illustration I thought that brings that back you've got gods, obviously not on the phone to a kidnapper but basically speaking to Pharaoh and saying you have got my firstborn son if you let him go that will be the end of it if you don't I'm coming and I am going to kill your firstborn son I'm coming after you and that's again not politically correct at all But it just shows God's passion for his people. He is zealous about them. And it says says something about the character of God, where he says, I've chosen a people, they're mine. If you get in the way of my son, if you get in the way of my people, it is not going to go well for you. So God says that. And then eventually, so Moses goes back to Egypt. So he walks back over. And then God tells him to tell the people this. In Exodus 6. So there are a few things in the Old Testament that we're going to read out today that I want you to remember. So the first one is number 12. The second one is some, a particular expression in this passage. God says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God's. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. We've probably read that hundreds of times. Think about the significance of that. The creator of the universe says to... Have a look at a map. If you can, at some point, just go onto Google Images and type Ancient Near East. You'll get a big map of the area which looks like the same as now. Try and find Israel on it. It's a tiny little speck in the midst of massive other empires. And God says to this tiny little nation, I will take you to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. That's what God does with us. With us, He takes people who are, in a sense, insignificant in the midst of a massive world, and he says, I'm going to take you, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God." And we see that all the way through the scriptures, and we're going to see that how that climaxes in Jesus. But I want you to remember that I will be your God; you will be my people. Okay, we can can remember a few expressions today. Okay, then what then what happens is Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, "Let my people go." Pharaoh says, "No." Then, after quite a while, which involves um, various plagues involving blood, frogs, gnats, locusts, uh, boils, hail, darkness, um, plague, loads of various things, after which every time Moses says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no, eventually, God ends up killing every single firstborn son in Egypt. He said, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And eventually he does. And eventually, Pharaoh ends up letting them go. So these guys are now happy. They are free to leave Egypt. Yes. And then they go through the Red Sea. You guys know the story. They go through the Red Sea. The Egyptians try and, try and follow after them. And God opens up the Red Sea in front of them. Israel passed through. The Egyptians try and follow them, and God closes the Red Sea, and the Egyptians drown. And they eventually come to a place which is the wilderness of Sinai, which is around here, so you guys can move a little bit. You kind of drifted from Egypt over, uh, little by little. Um, So they're in the wilderness of Sinai, and what happens there is that God appears to them on a mountain called Sinai and says, here are all of my commands to you. But before he does that, he he speaks to Moses and says this in Exodus 19. You yourselves, where he speaks to all of the people through Moses, have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You shall be to me a treasured possession. And then, final thing, there are three things you need to remember. Number 12... I will be your God, you will be my people, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, anyone know what a priest does? Any suggestions? What does a priest do? Yeah? Offer priest offers sacrifices, yeah? Kind of on a maybe larger scale, what does a priest do? Sorry? Excellent. A priest intercedes... In other words, a priest is kind of the intermediary between God and the people. And God's saying, you're going to be, to me, a kingdom... Could we have the passage back up again, please? Cheers. Um, You're going to be, to me, a kingdom of priests. In other words, you are a special people... And you're, in in a sense, you're going to be the intermediary between me and the other nations. So the other nations look at you and they see this is what God's people should be like. This is what it means to follow God. Oh my goodness, the God they follow must be incredible because they are so moral, they are so upright, they are so committed to justice. This God must be incredible. Does that remind you of anything? Beginning of creation. God creates humans in his image and says, as you spread and obey me, everyone's going to see and think that the God who created these people is Amazing. God's doing it again, but with the people. He says, you're going to be my new humanity. You're going to be the people that other nations will look at and say, wow, God must be with them, and God must be incredible. And what happens is that God's people don't tend to be much of a nation of priests. They don't tend to be much of a holy nation. They end up rebelling. They end up grumbling. There's lots of grumbling going on at the moment. Lots and lots and lots. You read numbers. It's like, has anyone ever seen one foot in the grave? Victor Meldrew, I don't believe it, just gets really grumpy all the time. That's kind of the experience of reading the book of Numbers. They're wandering around in the wilderness going, oh, oh, Egypt was so much better. Oh, we wish we were back there. And you just think, seriously, you wish you were back in slavery? But that's what God's people do for the whole time. And as a result... God punishes them and says, you guys aren't actually going to go back into the promised land, it's going to be the next generation, and you're going to wander around for 40 years, so I want to see a bit of wandering going around. So they just wander around for 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness, they wander around, until finally, one generation dies out, another generation um, comes in, and just before they go into the promised land, Moses speaks to them, gives them more laws, and says, you guys, when you go into the promised land, obey the Lord your God, if you obey him, things are going to go well. If you don't obey his law, things will not go well. You will be cursed, like we saw last week, that list of blessings and curses. And so he gives them the law that they need to keep. You can keep the law for them. And they go into the land. You guys guys go into the land, and there's much rejoicing again. They end up in the land. Now, the rest of the story, for pretty much until about... So this is about, um, I don't know, 1200 BC. The rest of the story, until 586 BC is God's people basically doing this. For part of the time, they look, at, they look at the law and they think, yes, we shall obey this. And they obey it and they worship God. And everything goes well. <laughs> but then what they do is they put aside the book of the law. and They say, no, we don't want to do that. And they end up worshipping other gods and they end up bowing to things that are just not even, not even gods at all. They end up bowing to chairs and various random gods. And at that point things don't go too well <laughs> and there's this ongoing cycle where God's people move, go away and come back and go away and come back and what happens after a while is God says oh my goodness you guys are terrible I'm going to split you in half for a start so in about, he splits them in half and these guys go, up, go south and these guys go north you guys are, these guys become Israel these guys become Judah these guys up here there is not one good king that comes out of them they're just idolatrous for the whole time so you guys need to pretend to be idolatrous Idolatry for the whole time bowing to other gods they don't end up going back to the Jerusalem temple to worship God which is what he said and so eventually in 722 BC God says that is enough is the king of Assyria here? <laughs> and God brings the king of Assyria round and he ends up getting... <laughs> and he ends up and the king of Assyria basically ends up wiping them out pretty much and taking them away. And these guys, we never hear of them again. The northern tribes of Israel, we never hear of them again. Okay, now into the south. The southerners... <laughs> sorry, that sounded very much kind of like British thing. The, the guys in the south, the Ju- Judah... They ended up sometimes picking up the book of the law and saying, ah, we should obey this because things tend to go pretty well when we obey this. Yeah, we should obey this. Sometimes things tend yeah. to go pretty well. And a lot of the time they don't. They put it away and they again give in to idolatry. And they pick it up again and start obeying. And it's kind of like this up and down of good kings, bad kings until eventually they throw the book of the law away completely and at that point the king of Babylon who looks oddly like the king of Assyria <laughs> around and in 586 BC comes and exiles these guys. Gets rid of them. So you guys need to go to Babylon with him. Yep, You you guys are slaves in your own lands. Because they didn't obey the law. The law which I think we, we have a very caricatured view of the law. The law is given to Israel in part because if they obey it, things go well, they are blessed and the other nations look on and say, you guys are amazing, your God must be amazing. They disobey it they end up getting cursed and the other nations say your gods are rubbish we're going to come and invade you well that's basically what ends up happening for the, pretty much the whole story of the Old Testament and so God's people the, so, the southerners in the tribe of Judah end up getting exiled to Babylon and they're told by a prophet called Jeremiah that you're going to be there for 70 years but God is going to bring you back and when he brings you back it's going to look pretty incredible but you can imagine these guys are not feeling good at the moment you're not feeling good are you? not liking it, they write, they write things like Psalm 130, 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we s- sat and we wept and we, we hung our harps on the tree because there's no point us singing, how can we sing to our God in a foreign land, they'd write, they'd write things like Lamentations, you read Lamentations, that's written after Judah had been taken into exile and it's strong language, they say you have made my teeth grind on the gravel. I have forgotten what happiness is. They were sad, they were, and they thought God has abandoned us. We're not God's people anymore. Surely God's given up on his people. But what happens is, there are two prophecies in particular which we're going to look at, and I want you to remember one of the things you had to remember. First one is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then verse 34... And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We read that out a lot, don't we? It's one of those passages we tend to know as Christians. That's written to a bunch of people in the mid-6th century BC in exile, who are saying, you've made my teeth grind on gravel, I've forgotten happiness. And God's saying, there's a new covenant coming that I'm going to make with you and I will be can we get the one the slide just before I will be their gods; they shall be my people God's saying I've not forgotten I haven't forgotten my promise I made to Abraham I said you will be my people I will be your God and I am keeping my promise second one is Ezekiel 36 22 to 20, uh, 28 we'll go, we'll go through and this again is happening when these guys are in Babylon Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Remember again, big picture, subplot. Big picture, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned above the, among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Through you... I'm going to show who I am. I'm going to show that I'm God. That's God's original design for the whole... The whole of scripture. I will take you from the nations. I'm going to take you back and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own lands. Next, next slide. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I've not forgotten. I have not forgotten. You may be the most rebellious, stubborn people in the world, but I have not forgotten my promise. I have not forgotten what I said to Abraham that through your offspring all the nations will be blessed. I've not forgotten. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you back, and when I do that, I'm going to change your heart itself. You guys weren't able to obey the law beforehand because you were so stubborn, so stiff-necked. I am going to change your heart itself so that you can obey my laws. And all of the nations will look on and say, wow, God is with these people. That's phenomenal, isn't it? I, just, I love knowing, I'm, partly because I'm a geek, but partly just because it does help me realise how great God is. Knowing the context of these prophecies. And just imagine these guys sitting in exile thinking God's abandoned us and hearing there's a new covenant coming. I'm going to bring you back to your land, I'm going to, I'm going to change your hearts, you will be my people, I will be your gods. The promise is still on track. And so that's what these guys are living with. They eventually come back, we won't bother about acting this out from now on, they eventually come back, and it doesn't seem like these promises happen. They come back because, basically, Persia ends up taking over Babylon, but they are still a small enclave within a massive, massive empire. Again, you can look at the map of the ancient Near East, they're a speck. ...on the whole massive map. They come back, they rebuild the the walls of Jerusalem... ...the cities that were destroyed. They still rebel against God. They still haven't had their hearts changed... ...and for the next 400 years... ...this promise doesn't seem to happen. So we have two solutions. Either it's going to happen... ...or God has failed... ...and has been uh, unfaithful to his promises. What we find out... ...is God remains faithful to his promises... And in about 30 AD, there is a guy called Jesus, Jesus son of Joseph, who ends up coming out of the northern parts of Israel called Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God has come. And he gathers huge crowds, and he preaches them, and he heals the sick, and he casts out demons, and he ends up spending 40 days in the wilderness in preparation for his ministry. 40 days, remember that number? 40 years. Israel failed when they were walking around in the wilderness. Jesus says, "I am going to represent and embody my people." Just like a football team in a sense can embody a whole country when they when they play in a competition and win, Jesus says, "I'm going to embody my people. I am Israel's king, and I am going to do what they should have done. I'm going to spend 40 days in the wilderness and be tempted by the devil, and I'm going to succeed." I'm going to cast out demons, proclaim the kingdom of God. I'm going to perfectly obey all of God's commands. I'm going to do all of that. And then what he does is he chooses disciples. And he chooses a particular number of them called apostles. Anyone care to mention how many? Twelve. What does the number twelve remind you of? Twelve tribes of Israel. He's being very intentional. He's saying, through me, there's a new Israel. Through me, there's a new people of God that's going to come about. And, and he basically embodies Israel. He chooses a new people. And then he says to these disciples, he says, I will build my church. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Because in the Old Testament, it seemed like the gates of Babylon, the gates of Persia, the gates of Greece, the gates of Assyria, the gates of Rome, it seems like all of them had prevailed against God's people. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and not even the gates of death itself are going to prevail against it. This people are not going to go away. This people are not going to end up getting put into exile. This true Israel are going, to, are going to last even beyond death itself. Which is just, you again, read that and you think, wow, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it when the gates of Babylon and the gates of Persia seem to have done in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, The time is now coming when your hearts are going to be cleansed, when the new covenant is being made. All of that stuff that Jeremiah and Ezekiel had talked about (coughs) is happening as I'm speaking to you. And then what Jesus says is a few puzzling things. In Mark 8, Peter, one of his disciples, ends up saying, You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one of Israel, the one we've been waiting for for all these years. And Jesus says, Yeah, you're right. And immediately afterwards he says, But we're going to go to Jerusalem now. And the Son of Man, that's me, is going to be handed over to the hands of the Romans. He's going to be flogged and he's going to be crucified. And the disciples are a bit puzzled. Jesus ends up saying stuff like in, in Mark, uh, Mark 10 and John 10.1 uh, John 10.11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus starts saying in a, in a Suddenly, in a dramatic twist, I'm going to lay my life down for my people. You remember Exodus 4? Let my people go. If you don't, I will kill your firstborn son. And Jesus is saying here, let my people go. And if you don't, I will be killed myself. The firstborn son steps in and says, I'm going to lay down my life for my people. And that's exactly what he does on the cross when he dies. Remember a few weeks ago we read out Revelation 5, that incredible dramatic passage about the, the lion and the lamb and the, how the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world won the victory. Now in that passage, heaven erupts into applause and says, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honour and wisdom and power. For you were slain and by your blood you have ransomed people from every tribe and every nation And you have made them a kingdom of priests, and they will reign on the earth. Again, remember the language. The whole thing's fitting together. And Jesus rises from the dead, defeating death itself. And he appears to his disciples, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of of Israel? No, of all nations. The curse that was brought onto Israel, has been lifted by Jesus. And now the blessing that was promised to Abraham, like Steph explained last week, can now go to the nations. Where we are here, so just think about this, we are here because a representative of God's people that he chose all those thousands of years back ended up laying down his life to take the curse and ended up being raised from the dead and sent his new restored people out to proclaim the gospel. We wouldn't be here if that wasn't the case. In Ephesians 2, passage we Luke read out earlier, Ephesians, Ephesians 2, he read the first ten verses, That those verses we love, by grace you've been saved, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive together. There's a second half to Ephesians 2. Actually, Dave and Luke, can you just come out quickly for... This. There's a second half to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 1 to 10 focuses on you were dead and God made you alive. And now, if Luke, you can stand here, and Dave, you can stand here. God says, Remember, at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh, most of us here would be Gentiles. Not many of us would come from a Jewish background. You called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that at that time you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world so here you are going to represent the Gentiles you're going to represent the Jews so this guy here he is God's chosen people whereas Luke here who is not a Jew has no hope in the world he is alienated separated from Christ complete foreigner to all of the promises that God made And then Paul says, "But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace." And but the problem is, He reaches here, and there is a massive wall in the middle. There's a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and yeah, an invisible wall. He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace. The wall that separates between God's people and those who weren't has been broken down in Christ. And now these guys get to become one new man, or you could translate this as one new humanity in Christ. God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled. So can we can skip over the next one and go to 1, uh, 1 Peter 3, 9-10. Luke, <laughs> Rich read this out at the beginning of the service. He, we, he didn't realise I was actually talking about this. We were laughing about it earlier. But he read this out. You are a chosen race, okay? This is being written, this letter is being written to Gentiles. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Does that remind you of anything? What does that remind you of? Exodus. Exodus 19, God says, You, Israel, are a chosen nation, a special people, a royal priesthood, a people for my own possession, and you're going to basically show the nations what, what I'm like. And now... God says of people who aren't Jews, who've been brought in, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You're a chosen nation that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. I love that word, excellencies. We are a people who are chosen because of what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done, we get to be grafted in, brought into God's people. And as a result, what God originally said to Israel becomes true of us. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that... So that we can all huddle together and have a good time, in part, so that we can gather and worship and declare God's excellencies in that way, but actually so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into those who, to those who still are in darkness. That's the idea behind it. We're blessed so that we can be a blessing. And I was really provoked by the, the words that were coming um, during praise this morning about actually sharing the gospel, preaching the good news of Jesus to people, and it's so important that we understand that. This isn't, this isn't just like, oh, you're a Christian and therefore the Bible tells you you have to share your faith. No, we come at the end of a huge story which is all about God saying, I'm going to demonstrate my glory to all the nations. And now you guys have been brought into the people through whom that is going to happen. And so actually as we, we declare the excellencies of the God who has made a covenant with his people and has kept it through Jesus, we're doing what we were born to do. We're doing what God had promised all the way back, all the way back. And eventually what happens is as we share the good news and proclaim the gospel and go to every single nation in the world, like Jesus said, go to all nations, eventually what happens is this. This is Revelation 7. This should be the kind of thing that drives us when we do mission. Passages like this should be the kind of thing that we, we look at and think, that keeps me going. When it's tough to share the good news with people, that keeps me going. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our gods forever. Amen. Does that drive you? Is that the thing? Is that the vision that drives you when you think, you know what, I want to share the good news with my friends at work. I have to read that again and again for that to drive me. That Actually, there's going to be a day where... It's not going to be 150 people sitting in a room singing God's praise. It's going to be a multitude from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages that no one could number. People from every different racial background, from every different ethnic background, every different economical background, every different nation in the world, all gathered around a throne. No one can number it. You can get your best statisticians trying to number how many there are. No one can number it. It's a multitude no one can number, crying out, salvation belongs to our gods. You've been faithful to the promise you made to Abraham to bless all the nations through him. And that should drive us that should be the kind of thing that drives us to mission that should be the kind of thing that drives us actually to live as God's people to be the kind of people that say actually our hearts of stone have been taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh so that actually the very way we live changes that we, we don't actually we're not, we're not marked out by the same patterns of living that we used to be we're now a new completely restored people that's the way we, we should live that's also a reason why we should, should prioritise spending time with each other that's why we do Sundays we do some days because we are God's people. We're not God's lots of little individuals. Although God loves every single one of us, we are God's people. We're a, a, a God's people out of a much larger people in the whole of the world that love God. And that's why it's so important that we spend time with one another, that we actually we pray for one another, that we have communion together and we just don't isolate ourselves. Can I just encourage you, if you are the kind of person who has a tendency to isolate yourselves, particularly if... if Things are going bad and you think, I just want to isolate myself. Can you meditate on God choosing a people for himself and blessing them? Because through this people, we are blessed ourselves and the others are to, and all nations are going to be blessed. It is such a blessing to spend time with people who are part of God's people. When I'm, when I'm going through times where I just feel like isolating myself and I come in and spend time in a setting like this, I find that I meet with God in a way that I don't when I'm on my own. I find it much easier to meet with God in a, in a group setting. And I, that might just be the way I'm wired, but there's something about spending time with people who are part of God's people that changes us completely. And so what I'd like us to do is I'd like us, like us to finish by reading Revelation 21, as we always do every week. But again, it never gets tiring. And remember that, that, that baggage of verses and of promises you have in your head as I read this out. And then we're going to praise. So perhaps the band could come up now, that would be great. And we can just launch straight into praising God afterwards and thanking him, we're God's people let's praise him, let's declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light, let's remember his excellencies let's maybe pray things and think about things that we might not always pray let's, let's pray things I often find myself praying things like thank you God that you were faithful for thousands of years that you promised and you've done it and I'm here because that promise is fulfilled that's the only reason we're here is God made a promise I'm going to choose a people to myself and, you, and that people's going to bless all the nations. And through Jesus, that's happened. So let's read this. And then let's spend some time praising God, taking communion together and just worshipping. I think we've only got about 10 minutes, so we might might, might have to um, hurry a little bit. But let's, let's spend some time praising God. Let's just read out Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. That's the church, God's people. Prepared as a bride adored for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their gods. How many thousands of years ago did God say that first? I don't know how many thousands, however long this is going to take for this to happen I don't know, thousand, two thousand years, whatever, we will look we will stand there and we'll hear God's, we'll hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their gods. He's been faithful to his promises. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then there's a verse I didn't put in the slide, which comes immediately after, which I just love. And I, I heard a voice coming from the throne saying, look, I'm making all things new. Just imagine standing there on that day. And I, just, I don't know, I, I picture that voice and I just, it, it, in a sense, I know it's a mighty powerful God, but I can picture it almost as a, a happy child saying to his parents, look, I'm making all things new. And we'll stand there, God's renewed people from every nation, every tri- tribe, every tongue, and we'll sing Salvation Belongs to Our Gods. In fact, I know I didn't prepare you guys for this. Is there any way we could sing that, maybe? Salvation Belongs to Our God. And we just, as we're standing here, let's think of that day when we're going to be standing around the throne singing that, not with 150 people, but with millions and millions and millions and millions of people from every tribe and nation who have been included in Christ. Let's do that. Let's praise God together now and worship him.